0: We had a lot of firepower. When we went out looking for trouble and we found it, we could usually take care of the trouble ourselves.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. This is the first of two episodes we have following Don Snedeker's experiences through the Cold War. In this episode we hear about his time in Vietnam and the book he has written entitled The Black Horse in Vietnam, the 11th Armoured Cavalry Regiment in Vietnam and Cambodia 1966-1972. Don was commissioned into the Armour Branch of the US Army in February 1969 and by December he had been posted to Vietnam, initially assigned to the 11th Armoured Cavalry Regiment, the Black Horse, serving as an Armoured Cavalry Platoon Commander and as a long-range reconnaissance patrol platoon leader. He was awarded the Bronze Star with V for Valour, a Purple Heart and a Combat Infantryman's Badge. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three U.S. dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate our co-host James conducts our chat, and I am delighted to welcome Don Snedeker to our Cold War Conversation.
0: My family emigrated from uh, the Friesen Islands off of the Netherlands in the uh, 1620s, helped to settle Brooklyn. I was the 11th generation of Snedekers to be born in Brooklyn. And uh, I lived there only for about a year, a year and a half, when my father decided, having gotten out of the Army at the end of World War II, that the Army was really what he wanted to do. So he rejoined, and we moved from Brooklyn to a place called Paris, Texas, uh, just outside of uh, Camp Hood, Texas, and... um, He then went off to the Korean War in 1951, uh, 50 rather, and came back after that, rejoined the 11th Cavalry Regiment, this time at Camp Carson, Colorado for the second time. He had been in the 11th earlier in his career when it was still a horse cavalry unit. And then uh, moved back and forth to Germany a couple of times. So I grew up as an Army brat. Uh, Until I joined the Army, I had uh, never lived any place more than, well, until after I left the Army, I had never lived any place in my life more than four years. And it was typical to move every two or three years. I went to eight schools in 12 years of elementary and high school. Uh, I spent six years in Germany uh, as an army brat. And so it was, a, if you will, a vagabond life, but I will tell you that it taught me some things. And those who were doing the same thing, other army brats, we learned a lot of very interesting things growing up. I learned to understand that Other countries were different. They weren't better. They weren't worse. They were just different. My father taught me that lesson. And it sort of stuck with me all of my life. I have an interest in geography. I have an interest in moving around in seeing new places. I've been to about 110 different countries in my life, and I have several more on my list yet to go. So until I army myself in in february 1969 i had been moving around all of my life
2: so you joined up your your brother your father in the army you kind of have no choice you join up in in 69 and get sent off fairly quickly to vietnam
0: it was typical at that time uh because it was the height of the war um as an officer uh i was at that time a second lieutenant As an officer, you were required to spend four months with a tactical unit, either in the United States or in Germany, before being assigned to Vietnam, or in Korea, for that matter. And so I spent uh, four months after my basic officer training at Fort Knox, Kentucky, uh, parachute school at Fort Benning, Georgia. I spent four months with the 3rd Armored Cavalry at Fort Lewis, Washington, went to jungle school in Panama, and then arrived in Vietnam on the 7th of December, 1969, still a second lieutenant, and was assigned immediately as a platoon leader. Uh, I was initially assigned to the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, but then Uh, I don't know how it is in the UK, but we say that it's never a good thing to get called out of class to visit the principal's office, the headmaster's office. And I was by name, and he said, Lieutenant, pack your bags. There's been a big fight uh, north of us, uh, Armored Cavalry Squadron, the 2nd Squadron, 1st Cavalry Regiment. They had a big fight, lost two platoon leaders. You were the last guy assigned here, so you're going there instead. And so my short sojourn with the Black Horse ended rather abruptly, got on a, hel- a helicopter, flew north and spent the rest of my time in Vietnam, a total of 10 and a half months, as an armored cavalry platoon leader and as a long-range reconnaissance patrol platoon leader in the second squadron, first cavalry known as the Black Hawks.
2: So did you feel ready for Vietnam after Panama, and after your, as you describe it, brief sojourn, were you ready for what was about to come? I certainly thought I was.
0: Um, You'd have to ask those in my platoon if they think I was. Uh, Certainly, you don't know what it's like until you've been there and done that. And I had done all of the training. I'd paid attention, but... There's nothing like all of a sudden you're now responsible. I'm, I'm a, a lieutenant with less than a year in the Army, and there are 45 young American males between the age, ages of 18 and 20 who their lives depended on the decisions that I made on an hourly and daily basis. And that hit me at some point along the way. And it's truly an awesome responsibility. It, it makes you stop and think, what am I doing here? Am I really ready? And so I don't know that I can answer
2: that question for you, but I certainly thought about it then and later. And when you were with the Armored Cavalry Regiment, what kind of missions did you undertake? Where did you um, fight and, and what are you looking to achieve.
0: The armored cavalry in Vietnam was one of the most versatile forces that was available to the U.S. forces because it was in armored vehicles. You had mobility, you had armored protection, and you had tremendous firepower. Each of our armored cavalry assault vehicles. Had a fifty-caliber machine gun and two seven-point-six-two millimeter M60 machine guns, as well as a forty-millimeter grenade launcher, uh, shoulder-fired by one of the troopers. A five-man crew, and a platoon had uh, six of those. In the platoon that I had, I also had three M48A3 Charlie tanks, main battle tanks with ninety-millimeter gun. Uh, 7.62 millimeter coaxial machine gun, and a 50 caliber machine gun. So we had armor protection, we had mobility, and we had a lot of firepower. That meant that when we went out looking for trouble and we found it, we could usually take care of the trouble ourselves. Obviously, you needed other forces to pile on, to overwhelm the enemy, but it was a rare occasion where we couldn't almost immediately gain fire superiority because of our armor protection and our heavy firepower. And so we were out looking for the bad guys. We looked on the roads. We looked in the jungles. We could bust jungle with those armored vehicles, and we frequently did, And occasionally we would dismount and do air mobile assaults into areas where we then acted as dismounted grunts as infantrymen. So we did pretty much all of the missions that were assigned to the infantry as well as a number of others because of, as I said, the mobility and the heavy firepower.
2: I'll admit, Don, that my understanding of the Vietnam War was that it was very much an infantry war. But having read your book, The Black Horse in Vietnam, I soon learned that actually the role that armoured cavalry and armour played in that war was was critical. And it was
0: an uphill battle because most of the army leadership at that time, based on the French experience in Indochina, believed that it was indeed an infantry war. Certainly the British in Malaysia And other guerrilla wars, the Philippines in in World War II, for example, it was an infantryman's war. And they believed, those infantry-centric leaders believed, that there was no role for armor. What's a tank going to do in a flooded rice paddy? It's going to sink. It's going to become a stationary target. No way. Maybe on the roads... Maybe around the fire bases as immobile pillboxes, but once the the two infantry divisions around Saigon deployed their armored cavalry squadrons—that's a battalion-sized unit—they began to realize that there was a role for armored cavalry. And then once the 11th Cavalry arrived in September of '66 it blew open that myth entirely. Just blew it away because there wasn't a job and pretty much wasn't a place where the regiment couldn't go, where armored vehicles couldn't go. And the squadron I was with, it was the same deal. We had the Lee Hong Fong forest right outside our base camp. And we went in and out of there routinely. And yet, Up to that point, it had only been infantrymen going in and out of it.
2: There was one very interesting uh, thing that I learned from the book was that when the unit first arrived in Vietnam, its vehicles were very different. And what happened was that it was in theater that a lot of the changes and up armor was made to make it into that capable force that you, you talk about.
0: Well, the Army Cavalry Assault Vehicle was, in fact, designed uh, before the 11th Cavalry left the United States. Uh, A couple of members of the regimental staff and squadrons flew to FMC, the Food Machinery Corporation, now just FMC, the the people who uh, manufactured the M113. And then some of those FMC representatives came to Fort Meade, Maryland. And they created the armored cavalry assault vehicle. Normally an M113 had a 50 caliber machine gun at the track commander's position, vehicle commander's position, but there was no armor around it and there were no side mounted machine guns. And so the people who were part of the regiment in 65 and 66, they designed the the Armored Cavalry Assault Vehicle, and tried it out. FMC said, we can do that. And by the time the regiment arrived in Vietnam, there were ACAV kits waiting for them to mount on the 113s. And from that point forward, the squadron that that I was assigned to in 2 Corps in 69, we had ACAVs. But... That was because the eleventh Cav had designed it and every other armored cavalry squadron in country then also adapted and made those same kind of vehicles. The mechanized infantry, however, generally did not. They stuck with the M113 with just the 50 caliber in an unarmored position on the on the
2: vehicle. It must have been also quite interesting for you to change your role from Sitting inside an A sitting inside a helicopter, and being deployed in quite a different way, in quite a different, for quite a different mission.
0: Night and day. <laughs> I mean, as 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 Don Starry commanded the, the regiment in Vietnam, and ended up as a four star general. One of my personal heroes. When I interviewed him for the book, he said, "You're not sneaking up on anybody in an armored cavalry operation." I mean, the vehicles make a lot of noise. When you're busting jungle, you're making a lot of noise. And so everybody knows you're coming. But when we were in the long-range reconnaissance platoon, that was different. You didn't want to be heard. You didn't want to be found out because you're in the bad guy's backyard, and they outnumber and outgun you by a lot. And so it was night and day thinking, night and day different tactics.
2: And as part of that long-range patrol, uh, as a platoon leader there, what sort of operations did you undertake?
0: We were doing, we would either be uh, taken in by helicopter and or by armored vehicle and dropped off somewhere. And then we would immediately walk, To a place and hunker down for a while to make sure that we had not been discovered. And then the mission was typically to watch a trail, to look for base camp, but typically it was to go to a place, occupy a hide position where you could see them, but they couldn't see you and report on it. Typically, we did not engage unless we had to, because like I said, you're six or eight guys, and anywhere you are, you're outnumbered. And so maybe you'll take two guys out if you want to do a prisoner uh, grab or something like that, but typically not. Typically, you looked, you reported, and then with any luck, you got out. Unobserved.
2: So you must have had to been by that point very comfortable in the jungle environment to be able to operate stealthily and to achieve your mission.
0: You had to be, and and I had a a, a guy, a young E four. He had uh, extended his tour three times in Vietnam. He was really, really, really good at what he did, and he had a sixth sense. He could tell, I mean, you can tell when the animals get real quiet, when there's no birds or, or monkeys or anything making noise, something's amiss. And so there, there are things that, and, you know, the, the infamous sixth sense, absolutely, absolutely. The hair goes up on the back of your neck and you say,
2: something ain't right here. And in that pretty intense kind of environment, back for some, some R&R or, or some uh, some downtime?
1: The LERP
0: platoon, because we were uh, sort of an unauthorized organization um, taken out of hide within the squadron that I was in, uh, we didn't operate that frequently. There were only 10 or 12 of us. And so we would do a mission every two to three weeks or something like that. But if you're in an armored cavalry platoon, you're out beating the bush every day. And unlike the infantry who would be taken in by helicopter, dropped off, and they had to live off of whatever they carried in their rucksack, they lived out there for three, four, five, six days at the most, and then were taken back to their base camp. The armored cavalry platoon, because they had their homes with them, because They had this mobility and we stuffed tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition and five gallon cans, multiple five gallon cans of water and oil and fuel. And you lived out in that vehicle for weeks, if not months at a time. Some of the people that I interviewed for the book told me that in a year's time that they were in Vietnam. They probably spent a total of two weeks out of 52 weeks at the base camp, and the rest of the time was on their vehicle in the jungle, other than the seven-day R&R, the rest and recreation leave that everybody was authorized.
2: And what sort of equipment would you carry on a long-range patrol? Presumably, you know, to move swiftly and quietly, you're going to be quite lightly, uh, lightly armoured.
0: That's correct. You were carrying your M16 with a, with a lot of rounds. Uh, we had a 60 millimeter mortar without a base plate and everybody carried one round. And that was just for breaking contact. If, if somebody had discovered us and was attacking, we'd shoot those 60 millimeter ra- mortar rounds and, and get out of the area as quickly as we could. Everybody had a Claymore mine everybody had one or two smoke grenades, everybody had a couple of uh, flares, and typically three to four canteens of water, and then one ration a day. You ate once a day, it was called a LERP ration, it was a dehydrated meal, and what you typically did was it took a lot of water, and that was a downside in the dry season, but typically you would put the water into the uh, meal, into the plastic bag, wrap it back up, and then put it next to your body so it will warm up over the day. And if you got a break sometime mid-morning, late morning, you ate half of it, and then you ate the rest in the evening, and that was your meal for the day. But you did not carry anything superfluous with you. Absolutely not.
2: How did you find combat operating in the jungle. Scary.
0: I mean, one of the biggest issues and it happened to me once and I'll never forget it. You don't know where you are. There are no landmarks. There was no GPS. We were compass and map. And so I had a, a helicopter pilot drop us off in the wrong place. And we started looking at the terrain and things didn't look right. And so I called for a, uh, a smoke round, an artillery smoke round, to be fired at a place where I thought was near where we were but wasn't going to hit us, and it landed several kilometers away. And we suddenly realized we were not where we were supposed to be, not where we thought we were going to be. And it was a scary night that night. But I will tell you that the biggest operational challenge for me was map reading in the jungle. And it, it is life-threatening, obviously, if you don't know where you are and can't get the help you need. If you don't know where you are and you need help, that, you know that's a bad situation.
2: So if you're there in the middle of the jungle, what resources can you call upon to support you? Are you able to call upon artillery or air support?
0: Absolutely. In, in both cases, both uh, as a uh, alert platoon leader and as an armored cavalry platoon leader, each platoon had a uh, mortar. And so you had uh, uh, an immediate fire support element with you. And the uh, the squadron that I was in had an air cavalry uh, troop in the regiment, the 11th Cavalry Regiment, that every squadron had an artillery battery. And there was always some artillery unit that was following what we were doing and ready to fire support. Helicopters were the most immediately available air support, but uh, Air Force jets Uh, they were on call as well. And so that was part of this notion that I talk about in the book, piling on. You make the contact and the people who make the contact try to engage the enemy and hold them in place. And then you pile on with additional support, whether it's additional ground troops or artillery fire support or helicopter gunships, or air force jets, or whatever it is, you pile on the combat power until you overwhelm the enemy.
2: Uh, was it out on one of these long-range patrols that you awarded both your your Bronze Star and your Purple Heart?
0: No, in fact, it was as an armored cavalry platoon leader. the 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 Bronze Star, uh, the mission was: we were on the edge of the Li Hongfong forest, and we had an intel report that said. There was a propaganda team that was using the area to go into villages and propagandize and get rice and recruits and things like that. And so we set up a, an ambush patrol where we thought they might come out of the Li Hongfong forest towards the village. And then the rest of the platoon where I was, we were just a kilometer away And ready to react. And that's exactly what happened. The intel turned out to be exactly right. And so what happened was the ambush patrol uh, hit the four-person propaganda team. Uh, The team escaped and evaded but ran right into where the rest of the platoon was. And so they all died and none of us did. Uh, The Purple Heart was an entirely different situation. It was in July. And as I indicated, it was a a very minor wound. My father served in World War II in Korea. My brother, two tours in Vietnam. I'm the only done son of a bitch who (laughs) got a Purple Heart. I wasn't paying attention
2: (laughs) to their example (laughs) or their advice. You should have paid attention to what your 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 uh, your father said. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, uh, we should talk about your your book, um, the Black Horse in Vietnam, uh, which is a fantastic read, and it really did open my eyes to what uh, what was achieved in Vietnam and how the American military went about doing it what prompted you to to write the book
0: my father served in the 11th cavalry twice once when it was a horse regiment in in california before world war ii and then at camp carson colorado in the early 1950s when it was an armored cavalry regiment and so i grew up understanding that this was a very special regiment As I said, uh, when I arrived in Vietnam, I was initially assigned to the regiment. It was a dream come true. This is where I wanted to be. And it was a huge disappointment when I was reassigned. I have no regrets whatsoever about serving with the Blackhawks in Vietnam. It was a fabulous unit. But there was something about the Black Horse because of my father's service. And so I joined the regiment in Germany after my Vietnam tour, 1974. And ever since then, it's sort of been a home to me. And I understood that being a student of the Vietnam War and having read many, many books about it, I understood that all of the books, virtually all of the books, were about the infantryman or helicopter pilots perspective of the war. And I understood that that wasn't the whole story and that wasn't right. And so about 25 years, maybe now 30 years ago, I started interviewing friends that had served in the regiment, people that I had served with and started collecting documents. I spent many, many hours at the National Archives in the Washington, D.C. area when I was assigned to the Pentagon on my own time and started collecting information, history about the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment in Vietnam. It's called the Black Horse Regiment. If you see the patch, it's a rearing black horse on a red and white shield. There's no doubt in your mind that is the Black Horse Regiment, and there's something special about it. It was the only armored cavalry regiment that served in Vietnam, and nobody was telling their story. And I thought that that needed to change. And having been to many of the reunions and gotten to know these brave young Americans who could have gone to Canada, could have gone to Sweden, could have gone to jail, but instead raised their hand and said, take me. They went, they served, they came back, they put their uniform and their memories away in the attic and got on with life as a truck driver, as a farmer, as a whatever. And someone needed to tell their story, tell their family about what it was, that their black horse veteran had done. And I raised my hand and said,
2: pick me. And it is a a great book. And I think it, as from a layman's perspective, it chronicles the fact that they were there at the start in 1966 and left in 1972. But undoubtedly, as a regiment, had a massive impact uh, on the war. Absolutely
0: right. It was... Under Westmoreland, it was definitely an infantryman's war. And when he left in the early summer of 68, uh, Creighton Abrams came in. He was an old horse cavalryman. He understood what he had, and he played them like they should have been from the very get-go gave them missions that everybody else thought was, oh, there's no way you can put tanks in there and guess what? You could. And it made a huge difference, a huge difference in the outcome at the tactical and operational level. Whether it made any difference at the strategic level is beyond the scope of the book and probably beyond the scope of my brain. But At the tactical and operational level, the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment was the most effective unit assigned to the U.S. Army in Vietnam, and I defy anybody to come up with another one that was better.
2: What impact did the Black Horse Regiment have on thinking and equipment in the U.S. military in the years after the war?
0: well certainly the the role of armored cavalry changed as a result of that experience and so initially let's talk about a little bit about doctrine uh, pre-war doctrine was the cavalry was intended to make contact and then hand the fight off to someone else in order to survive and go do something else so The typical army doctrine was the armored cavalry was out front or on the flank. And when a threat occurred, they initiated the contact, found out what the enemy's intentions were, and then passed it off to an infantry division or an armored division and said, okay, you got it from here. And then moved back out of the fight, hopefully with sufficient combat power to be able to do something else later. But as a result of Vietnam, the armored cavalry became heavier. Prior to that, most armored cavalry units were not heavily armored. There were tanks and there were some personnel carriers, but the scouts were in jeeps and everybody knew that they're not going to survive the modern battlefield They didn't survive the modern battlefield in World War II, but through the 60s, we still had our scouts in jeeps. And so as a result of Vietnam, and Don Starry, I mentioned him already, he was the regimental commander, later commanded training and doctrine command, and the 5th U.S. Corps in Germany. He made sure that the armored cavalry became truly armored. We received main battle tanks and armoured fighting vehicles, the M3 Bradley as a scout vehicle. And part of that is a direct result of the armoured cavalry success in Vietnam with more armour than Jeeps and just machine guns.
2: Just turning back to yourself, um, you do a tour of Vietnam and then you return home to the U.S., What was it like returning home to a country that was perhaps less sympathetic than when you'd left?
0: I probably have a, it's not a unique perspective, but it's a different perspective than those who were draftees or stayed in the army only for three or four years and then got out. I stayed in the army. And so I was living in. A bubble, if you will. I was living in a military community. When I went to the Armor Officers Advanced Course, 95% of our class were Vietnam veterans. So we all looked alike and were very similar in our views of the world. And so there was not a whole lot of the civilian animus towards the warrior as well as the war that many, many others experienced. And so I I really can't speak to having any really bad experiences. Obviously, when you were in the Army, you had short hair, and everybody else in the United States uh, had long hair and big mustaches, and you were immediately identifiable as someone in the military. And so those of us in the military sometimes stayed within our own community as a self-defense mechanism, but it, it, it wasn't that awful. And probably the one of the things that has struck me, the difference between Vietnam and the Gulf War several decades later, is that while some in the United States during the Gulf War were opposed to the war, but they were able to distinguish between the war and the warrior. In Vietnam, there was no distinguishing for most people. If you were in the army, you were part of the problem. And that's a huge difference in our society that I'm very thankful.
2: What are your overriding memories of the war in Vietnam from a personal perspective.
0: Everybody will say this. The heat was oppressive. You got off of that airplane at Tonsonut or wherever you arrived in country and it knocked you out. I mean, it was, you were hot for 365 days. For me, it was 10 and a half months, but it was oppressively, the weather was oppressive. You were either hot and dry or hot and wet. And uh, one time we were, uh, as a LERP platoon, we were on a mission and it was during the rainy season and it was 65 degrees and our teeth were chattering. We were freezing to death because it had been 110 degrees just a week before. So everything you did was within the environment within the context of this oppressive weather. And everything was unknown. It was strange. It was different. I had never been into the to the Orient, if you will. At that time, it was the Orient, now the Far East, whatever, Southeast Asia. I had never spent a day anywhere, anything like that, except in Panama the three weeks that I went to jungle school. And so it was really different. The culture was different. And you didn't know who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. And so you had to be alert all the time. And you were in a strange environment, in oppressive weather, and people with guns who were very good at it were trying to kill you. And so that, that built up over time. Have you been back to Vietnam since you served there? Thirty-five years and one month to the day, I landed at Vung Tau on a cruise ship with my wife, and it was a huge difference. Huge difference. Um, half of the population of Vietnam today uh, is was born after the war, and they like Americans because we have money. And we're willing to spend it. Um, I wouldn't go near one of their museums because I knew better than to do that because it would only piss me off. But yes, I've been back. I'm not like some that you read about, some that Hollywood has glorified. I don't have flashbacks. I don't have bad dreams. I have a friend who just won't go back to Vietnam. He just won't do it. My dad wouldn't go back to Korea after the Korean War. He said, I just won't do it. And so there are many of my colleagues and contemporaries who have these issues. I'm not one of them. I have, my wife and I have very good friends here In the United States, they're Vietnamese. They both got out of Vietnam, one by the skin of his teeth, the other because of the orderly departure program. They're amongst our best friends. And so I I don't have any animosity. I just am not happy about how it's all evolved over time. But that's way above my pay grade. What questions haven't they asked about the book they should have asked? Well, I I just want to make the point uh, about the book that, as I indicated before, the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment was the only Armored Cavalry Regiment to serve in Vietnam. There were divisional Armored Cavalry squadrons, but there was only the one regiment. And the regiment was unique. There were about 4,400, 4,500 soldiers in an armored cavalry regiment at that time. And they all worked for one colonel. And they all wore the same patch. And it was truly a combined arms unit. There were scouts, armored scouts, and dismounted scouts, the arrow rifle platoon. There were tanks the Armored Cavalry Assault Vehicles, Mortars, Artillery, Helicopter Gunships, Scout Helicopters, Huey Transport Helicopters, Armored Engineers, a medical company, a little bit of maintenance support. It was truly a combined arms team under one commander. So that if a unit, an armored cavalry platoon ran into a base camp in the middle of the jungle, they could call on their troop commander who commanded two other armored cavalry platoons and was frequently reinforced with a tank platoon. They could, that troop commander could turn to the squadron commander who had an artillery battery that could reinforce, as well as two more armored cavalry platoon uh, troops and a tank company. At the regiment, you had the arrow uh, rifle platoon, you had the air cavalry troop, you had armored engineers. So, as I said before, they could get into trouble, but then fight their way out of that trouble as well. And that was unlike any other unit in Vietnam, an infantry brigade in a division or a separate infantry brigade. They did not have their own helicopters. They had to go to somebody else, some other commander to ask for helicopters. They didn't have their own engineers. They had to go to somebody else to ask for engineers. But Black Horse 6, the commander of the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, he had all of those assets under his command and could make things happen that other commanders could only dream about. And it was not only the ability to do that, but the ability to do that quickly. Because if you're an infantry brigade commander and you need helicopters, you have to go to division and fight with the other brigade commanders to get those helicopters, or you need engineers, you have to go to the division commander and say, can I have engineers from your engineer battalion, so on and so forth. So it was a matter of the ability, the command and control, but also the reaction time. And that made a huge, huge difference. And the book shows a number of examples where because it was the regiment involved in a situation, they were able to overcome the enemy. Whereas other units would not have been able to do so. And I think that's what finally convinced the, what I call the infantry mafia, the guys that were running the war that, oh, maybe the Armored Cavalry does have a role to play here and can make a difference. And I think that is a huge point that is not made in any of the other books that I've read about the war.
2: If it was such a successful model, why was it not replicated more broadly throughout the forces in Vietnam? Well,
0: Teta 68 happened. And just before TED of 68, Westmoreland had gone back to uh, the Pentagon and said, I need another 100,000 soldiers here in Vietnam. We we're already at 525 or something like that. And he put in his force request. And in that force, force request was another armored cavalry regiment that was going to go work up in I-Corps up in the north near the demilitarized zone. But because Ted of 68 happened and because of the political backlash and the Congress saying enough is enough and Walter Conkite saying enough is enough and the American people in the streets saying enough is enough, no additional troops were authorized. In fact, that's shortly before we started drawing down. So It was possibly going to happen, but it didn't. And it was a matter of timing primarily. Sadly, the lesson learned there was also forgotten. Tom Montgomery, who commanded the U.S. forces in Somalia, uh, he and I have spoken about it, and he served with the 11th Cavalry in Vietnam. And he said, I've got all these Rangers and these light infantry guys, but I need some armored vehicles here. I need an armored cavalry squadron. And the Pentagon said to him, not going to happen. We don't want a high profile that all that armor is going to make. And so when the Battle of Mogadishu happened, he needed an armored cavalry squadron. It would have made a huge difference in the outcome of that fight. But he couldn't get it because well the infantry guys were in charge again <laughs> you see a theme here <laughs> maybe I'm just a little
2: <laughs> <laughs> but at, at the risk of swearing in church uh, isn't this what the US Marines do they have a Marine Expeditionary Unit where they do have access to all the resources that you said that the Black Horse Regiment had
0: not really Uh, A a Marine Expeditionary Unit has uh, very little uh, armored force, maybe a company of tanks, maybe, and not everyone does, and they can't sustain over time. The Marine Expeditionary Force is designed to go in, establish a line, a, a, a zone, if you will, and then be replaced by the army. They're not designed to sustain the presence on the battlefield for months and years like they did in Vietnam. And it was a serious problem for the Marine Corps in Vietnam because they had neither the logistics nor the heavy firepower to sustain themselves over years of war in a very conventional warfare environment that was in I-Corps near the demilitarized zone. That was a real tough fight. And because of their organization and design and their doctrine, they're not designed to fight that kind of war. And so that's why Task Force Oregon was created. That's why the 23rd Infantry Division had to go up north because the Marines, this is not saying anything about the Marines other than, it's not their design. It's not their mission.
2: It must be a big logistical challenge to keep an armoured cavalry unit in the field, both supplied with fuel, ammunition, food, and all the other stuff that you need to keep fully operational. How did that happen?
0: Well, just as an example, the uh, as I described, every armoured cavalry platoon – had nine vehicles, every one of which had a 50-calibre machine gun. The box of ammo for a 50-calibre machine gun is 50 rounds. And we had, in each of our vehicles, we had between five and 10,000 rounds of 50-calibre machine gun ammunition on each vehicle. And in the course of a firefight, you'd use maybe three-quarters of that, if not most of it. And so when we were working for an infantry division and an infantry battalion, a standard light infantry battalion, I think they had 4 .50-caliber machine guns. And so when we went to the logistics support of the infantry division, the division support command, and said we need five hundred thousand rounds of fifty caliber. I mean, they were knocked on the floor because they never thought in those terms. They might need a thousand rounds every month. And we were going through tens of thousands in a day. And so it was a huge problem, and the regimental organization did not have its own support squadron. That didn't happen until Germany, when I was in Germany in in the late 70s, that the Army figured out that this regiment needs its own logistical support organization. And that was a huge problem for the regiment in Vietnam. The, the only other point I would make is that uh, because it was the only armored cavalry regiment in Vietnam, of course, it attracted the, the stars of armor branch. In other words, the guys who were good guys or the guys who wanted to be good guys, they wanted to get assigned to the only armored cavalry regiment in Vietnam. And so the regimental commanders were, without exception, all-stars. And most of them went on to become general officers. Uh, Three of them went on to become four-star general officers. Don Starry, Fred Franks, George Patton, these guys changed the Army because of what they did in Vietnam after Vietnam. They came back to the United States and said, what are the lessons learned and what do we need to change? And so the Airland battle doctrine, Don Starry came up with that with Hubo Vashtasega and a bunch of other guys. Um, Fred Franks, when he commanded 7th Corps in the desert, he and I have spoken about it. He said, every day I thought about what did I learn in Vietnam that I need to apply here? And he says that in his book. So it made a huge difference for the Army. These individuals that were part of the regiment, those who served as the colonels of the regiment, but those who served as young Sergeant E-5, young lieutenants and captains, they went on to transform the Army. And the National Training Center, the M1 tank, airland battle—these are all things that Black Horse people from Vietnam had their hands on and helped to change the army. And the war that was fought in the desert absolutely was because of those changes: airland battle, National Training Center, M1 tank, Fred Franks, Don Starry—absolutely huge impact on the army and still today
1: and we have further photos videos and information on this episode in our show notes which will show as a link in your podcast app don't forget if you'd like to get one of those cold war conversations coasters help keep us on the air then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate if you can't wait for the next episode do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Thanks again to all our financial supporters of the podcast, but a special thanks to our Politburo level patrons, who are Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, and Jeffrey Jones, who are supporting us at thirty US dollars per month. Thank you. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com/slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter. You'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.